0: We thank you for this day. We thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your salvation. Thank you for all the blessings you bestow upon us every day, Lord. all your grace and your mercy. Lord, we ask that you would uh, bless this class, that you uh, would give our speaker function, and that uh, you would open our our ears to hear, Lord, that uh, we would be able to uh, Get the most out of every word spoken, and we'd be able to use the uh, what we'd learn to open up your word and to understand it more. Lord, we pray that uh, we would um, you would write uh, your word
1: on our hearts. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, we are going to continue in our second session on hermeneutics. I gave you a broad definition last time, science and art of interpretation. So there are at least two aspects of hermeneutics that we will get into. And this course is somewhat of a, I hate to say, introductory course into hermeneutics. It's that, but I think it goes beyond just an introduction. I think we get into a lot of detail. And we'll talk a lot about the science aspect at the very beginning. It's a science because it involves well-established, well-tested principles. And it's also an art because it involves a skill that takes development, takes time and effort. So we're talking about the science and art of interpretation. I mentioned last time that I consider this the most important course on the uh, curriculum for seminary courses because it's foundational to all the other courses that you take. So if your hermeneutics is not where it should be, then it's going to affect your understanding of every other course that you take. So we talked a lot about that. Last time, and this is just a quick review, we had a mainly an introduction, and you'll notice from the review here, it's primarily motivational to encourage you to get into it, devote yourself to it. I gave you a picture of hermeneutics in general. Hermeneutics is a broad topic that touches on every area of communication. Whenever there is communication between two parties, two individuals, two nations, or whatever hermeneutics in is involved. The principles that are involved to try to understand that communication between two parties. So I gave you several examples of how it touches literature, it touches even science, law, government, history, many areas. Even marriage. I made the comment, nobody laughed, but this course will save your marriage. So it touches on many areas. Now this course, the scope of it, will be limited to biblical hermeneutics. So we draw from those principles that apply in many, many areas, as well as we draw from Scripture to develop particular hermeneutical principles that are applicable to Scripture itself. So that will be the scope of this course, and there's a biblical basis for that. We looked at 2 Timothy 2.15. And I also emphasize that within the church, oftentimes things change as theology seems to change or people change, whatever. And there is a movement today away from traditional Protestant hermeneutics, and some of them are subtle, and some of them are not even detectable, but there seems to be a move away from the principles that we will develop. So the scope of this course will involve the conservative, traditional, Protestant hermeneutical principles, and then from there we'll apply them to biblical passages. We'll call that exegesis. So I gave you a little background on that, and the purpose of the course is to get you into the biblical text, and to do that we have to outline these principles and to lay that foundation for a lifelong study. This will be something that you will endeavor as long as you are involved in, in ministry. And to kind of motivate and encourage, we talked about the importance of hermeneutics and how it affects theology, other areas as well. Gave a few prerequisites. I mentioned that this is a spiritual book and written ultimately by God himself. So those spiritual dimensions require regeneration. The unbeliever cannot and is unable to fully understand all of Scripture. He can understand that that God uses to draw him to himself. But we look at 1 Corinthians 2.14 that speaks of the natural man or the unbelieving man cannot accept the things of the Spirit. So there's some prerequisites. There were some others that we talked about as well. And we concluded the course, or at least that last session,
0: talking about the nature of Scripture. And this is also important. This is foundational.
1: Hermeneutics from other perspectives generally come as a result of different views on Scripture. For example, liberals who have a low view of Scripture don't see inspiration in the same way that we do. They have a different hermeneutic. And as a result, they end up with different interpretation with any particular individual passages. So our attitude and our understanding of what Scripture is like, in fact, sets a foundation for the hermeneutics that we utilize in interpreting Scripture. So we talked about the nature of Scripture, and one of the things that I emphasized was the
0: uniqueness uniqueness of Scripture. It's unique in its authority, we
1: believe, because of inspiration, that it has the full authority of God himself, and there are several scriptures that we could use to, to, to establish that idea. We also said that the scriptures are you, unique in that they are very diverse, more diverse than perhaps any other literature that you can encounter so I talked about the different time frames over which the scriptures were written, different authors—at least forty different authors—which is very different from most literature. And in spite of all of the diversity, we also said that there is an incredible unity from Genesis one one to Revelation twenty one or twenty two twenty one. We didn't spend too much time talking about the survival of scripture, but it is unique in that way—in that Over history at different periods. An example in the Old Testament, the entire book of Jeremiah was destroyed. We have a historical record of that. And then God inspired Jeremiah to write another, I don't want to say a copy of it, but another edition, I guess, of the same book. So that's just one example of the survival of scripture, God has preserved it, and that might even be a spiritual principle there, or an eternal principle that God not only inspires, but preserves that, that He has, has penned for, for our benefit. We talked about the objectivity. The Bible is unique in its objectivity. Many religious works, particularly of false religion and cults. They glorify their founders or their leaders. The Bible presents all of its leaders with all of their frailties, all of their weaknesses, all of the negatives that uh, all of us struggle with uh, as individuals. These are human beings with sin nature that God uses in a mighty way, and he's capable of using anyone. So, Scripture is very unique. So, that's where we left off. And I wanted to start on the literary nature. So, not only does the Bible have a unique nature, but it also has a literary nature. What I mean by that is that the Bible has many characteristics similar and or even identical to any other book. And there's a few of those that we can highlight. We won't spend too much time on it. And and by the way, this is just kind of a, a brief introduction to a whole area of study for those of you that are going to take other theological courses. You'll take bibliology. And all I'm giving you is just a kind of a thumbnail sketch of an entire course that would take a whole semester. So this is an introduction to bibliology, because it's important to understand a little of that in hermeneutics as well. So the literary nature, it, it, the Bible was prepared. It has a preparation that is similar to other books, a physical preparation. The Bible was not written or passed down from a mountain in golden tablets, as is claimed by the Book of Mormon. But it had a physical preparation. Individuals wrote a real book or books in, on real materials, in some cases parchments or papyrus. So it has a physical preparation. Today, we write books differently. We do a lot of electronic writing and printing as well. So, a physical preparation. It also is similar to other literature in that it has that historical aspect. We touched on that. We'll develop that in more detail. But... The books are not written as ivory uh, ivory tower treatises. Every book has a historical background. Some books we know more than others, but every book basically was written in a particular context historically and oftentimes to a particular audience. So it has a historical element, and sometimes there are historical allusions made in that book and particularly books that are historical, even more, they record historical events. So that's similar to many books of literature. has linguistic characteristics. In fact, the first principle that we'll look at is what we would describe as the linguistic principle. It utilizes language, in other words, Language is universal amongst human beings because God built it within us. So, God was pleased to reveal himself utilizing language. And we talked a little bit last time on the fact that the Old Testament is written in a particular language, primarily Hebrew, but there are some passages that have Aramaic, New Testament entirely in Greek. And just like any books of those periods, some of them were written in Aramaic. Some of the books of the Old Testament were also written in Hebrew and other extant languages that existed in that time. There were some books in the New Testament as well, obviously written in Greek. And today we have a variety of languages that are utilized as well. Another literary aspect is just like a novel, let's say, As an example, a novel, you don't pick out a paragraph in the middle of the book and then pick out another one towards the end and then skip to the front and jump around, as is common amongst some believers in terms of dealing with scripture, but it has a contextual aspect to it that needs careful consideration. And again, this is another very important hermeneutical principle that we will we will develop. So books are written within a particular historical context and then through the progress of the book the writer develops a context for every passage. So that that precedes a paragraph somewhere later on in the book as a prior context that the author has already developed and that Paragraph or that chapter fits within the context of the book and the things that follow, that context continues and serves as a context for further passages as well. So these are just a few areas where the Bible is similar to any other book. So it has a dual nature. It has an aspect that is very diverse and different from other books but it also has several similarities. Another unique feature or aspect of Scripture is its spiritual nature. We could have included it under the uniqueness, but I'm separating it out separately because it is so important, and perhaps we would say that this is the most unique aspect in that it has this spiritual aspect that no other book has. Even religious books, they may have a spiritual nature, but it is not of the same spiritual nature as the Bible. We believe that what we have in Scripture is from the one true God, whereas we would uh, identify other religious writings as not having a source in the God of the Bible. It may have a spiritual source, probably Satan himself. So, just very briefly, let's expand on this spiritual aspect of of Scripture. And this is the heart of bibliology, dealing with the spiritual aspect. So, these are the main areas that you'll look at in more detail in a full course on bibliology. You'll look up many passages that speak of the revelation. The nature of Scripture is that it is a revelation. And what we mean by that as conservative believers is there's no passage in the Bible that man could have come up with on his own. In other words, we believe that all of Scripture comes as a result of God revealing his thoughts. So we are not reading simply what Paul wrote down, or simply what Jeremiah or Isaiah or Moses, but we are actually reading in Scripture things that God revealed to Jeremiah, Isaiah, Moses, Paul, Peter, etc. So revelation is an important thing element of scripture, and we would uh, take that to every passage in the 66 books. A good description of that, or you might even call it a definition, God has revealed to the original authors the unknowable things he wants man to know about himself. And you could even add not only about himself, but things pertaining to his will, things pertaining to him, and things pertaining to what he's doing in the universe and what he has done. So that's revelation. Key word there, God has revealed. So what we're looking at are not things that men came up with, but these are things that God has given to us by grace to give us direction, to give us insight, to enable us to have a relationship with him. And some of the key passages that indicate this idea, for example, you could use Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, where God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, in Scripture, we have what God has revealed, his thoughts to original authors, and they go beyond what we would think of or what we could come up with in our natural state. Isaiah forty-five fifteen truly truly thou art a God who hides Himself O God of Israel Savior in other words God is un incomprehensible is is the word I, I was going to use another word but that's not accurate uh, I believe in the doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God in other words we as humans in our Human nature do not have the capability of knowing or understanding the one true God apart from God revealing himself. So God is knowable, but he's knowable only as he reveals himself. That's a thumbnail statement on the incomprehensibility of God. So the Isaiah 45, 15 And the Isaiah 55 passage indicate this idea of God being not only different, but even unknowable. 1 Timothy 6.15 starts in the middle of a sentence, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the unapproachable King of kings and Lord of lords. In other words, man can't enter into the presence of God apart from God's permission. Yet, man can't enter into an understanding of God apart from revelation. Then the verse goes on, Who alone possesses immortality and dwells in light, whom no man has seen or can see. We cannot see that light where God dwells. To him be the honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So, uh, we need revelation. And in 1 Corinthians 2, here's the central passage, 6 through 10. Paul explaining his writing. But when he says we, probably includes other writers, at least. He may be referring to apostles in that context. But I think he's speaking of scripture. Yet we do speak wisdom amongst those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age. So man can't come up with these things. Not of the rulers of this age who are passing away, verse 7, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, so it's unknowable, a mystery, the hidden, it's not accessible, it's hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Verse 8, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen or ear not heard, after which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. And then here's the key verse, verse 10, for to us. The same us that he speaks of in verse 6 when he says, Yet we do not speak wisdom. Verse 10, for to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So that's the doctrine or the concept of Scripture as a revelation. And since it's a revelation and since God is its author, then we also believe that that message is an inspired message. So we believe in the doctrine of inspiration. And I like Ryrie's definition, so let's take a look at what Ryrie says in one of his books. God superintended the human authors so that they recorded his message to man in the words of the original authors. So God used the original authors, used their thought processes, and in some cases used their research, like Luke, what he tells us in the introduction to his gospel, that he's presenting materials that have been written, that he has researched. So God uses all of that. He uses their style. He uses their their background. Paul being like a scholar. So many of the books are not dictated, but all the same, God superintended these human authors. Now, some of the books God directed by direct word, it appears, where he dictated messages. And, for example, Moses is instructed to write certain things. But the key word there is God superintended, and we believe that, In that superintending, even though human authors penned as they organized their thoughts, God superintended it in such a way that the end product is exactly what God intended to communicate. No less, no more. So God superintended the human authors so that they recorded his message to man in the words of the original authors. There's many scriptures, probably one of the clearest scriptures is 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God, and then he talks about the profitability of it or how it is useful, but the idea of God-breathing scripture, kind of a Visible or picturesque way of describing the superintending process. We also have Second Peter 1.21. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. And when he speaks of prophecy, I think he's speaking probably more broadly than simply Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the minor prophets, etc., I think he's speaking of Scripture as prophetic. We'll talk about that later. I believe that all of the writings of Scripture were written by prophets that God inspired. Prophets in the broadest sense. There are Old Testament historical prophets. I think Paul was a prophet in the writing sense. So when Peter says, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, here's the last part of the verse, but men moved, or you could say inspired by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. In other words, the source of the ideas, the material, is God himself, and God superintending as the Holy Spirit moved amongst them. Now, in our culture, even amongst evangelicals, because there are many evangelicals that hold inspiration, but the way we've stated it is a little broad, but there are some that attempt to limit, I guess you could say, inspiration. So theologians now have to kind of define it more carefully, more specifically. So we speak of plenary inspiration. And what we mean by that is we believe that all of the scriptures, the 66 books from beginning to end, Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22:21, all of it is inspired. And some of the theologians might use some of the words of like Paul, I think, when he says, well, these are the words of Christ or Jesus. But I say they would give a higher, I guess you might say, or inspiration to what Jesus said, and maybe not so much to to Paul. But we believe that Paul was equally inspired, so plenary inspiration. Psalm 119, 115 says, You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Jeremiah seven. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Now, I think this is specific to Jeremiah, but I think there's a principle there that implies that anything that God speaks, anything that God inspires, is in fact fully inspired. And some theologians don't stop there, so we have to add some more description to inspiration. We believe in what is called verbal inspiration, or verbally inspired. Or we would just say that even the very words are inspired, not simply the thoughts. passage you could use for that is John 6.65. Is the words of Jesus. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words, that's Jesus, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Talking about words. You could even use passages like Paul when not only does he use words, but like in Galatians 3.16, When he's referring to a promise in the Old Testament, he says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds. Paul is distinguishing between a plural and a singular in one word. He goes on as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is Christ. Now he's also interpreting the uh, Abrahamic Covenant there, but Paul is distinguishing even within words. So we believe in verbal inspiration. Second Corinthians two thirteen, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. Combining spiritual thoughts, there's your ideas, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So we believe in plenary or verbally plenary inspiration. And there's other things that we could say along those lines, but I think that's enough to give you an idea what... Inspiration is. So we believe verbally plenary inspiration. And because this is a revelation, it follows naturally that Scripture is inspired. And from revelation and inspiration, it follows naturally that what is contained in Scripture is also inerrant. So we believe in inerrancy. A good description of inerrancy. Scripture is infallible and without error
0: or fault in all its parts and words. So a simple description, simple definition, but it's also somewhat broad.
1: And again, in the culture that we live in, there are some theologians that that limit inerrancy. So let me expand a little bit on it. I mentioned last time I do a lot of creation science. And in creation science, uh, conservatives that believe in it believe in inerrancy. And we attempt to defend scripture and the inerrancy of scripture. In the scientific realm, so we would say that scripture is inerrant when it speaks to anything that it addresses, including science and history. Because there are some theologians that would limit it and say, no, we believe in inerrancy, but we limit it to theology or doctrine. And they would fudge a little bit or hedge a little bit in the area of history. And in the area of science, and they would say, uh, the Bible's not a scientific text, so don't try to make it scientific. But I believe that the Bible makes scientific statements. In fact, I can make a case for Genesis 1-1 being every much a scientific statement as it being a theological statement. Yes, it's a theological statement, but it is also a, an Uh, A scientific statement. And I would even say that it has all of the elements of a historical statement as well. So we would say that the Bible is inerrant when it speaks to any area and I do another course, in fact I do Charlie Clough's course and if you've taken uh, the framework course I give it a different title when I teach it, but it's very similar to Charlie's course, we hold to the, not only inerrancy, but we emphasize the historicity of the early chapters of Genesis.
0: Right, what do you mean by saying that Genesis 1-1 is a scientific statement? As well, all of
1: the, as all of right. the element, yeah, that's a good question.
0: Because science,
1: you know, there's observational science, which is yes. where you can repeat it, and then right. there's forensic science. So, I'm assuming you're talking about a forensic type. I'm talking about historical science, yes. Okay. But, it, uh, just to expand on what you're saying, science deals with time. Oftentimes, not always, but uh, it's within a time frame, and sometimes time is an element of it. Some of our formulas include time in science, and we have time in the beginning. There's agency, in other words, cause and effect, in science. And we have agency in that statement. In the beginning, God, he's the ultimate agent and ultimate creator. And you have processes in science. So you have creation, that's a process. You have matter. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You have the earth, you have matter. And there's other elements as well, but that gives you an idea. This this is making a statement concerning the natural realm. It's theological, yes, but it's dealing with issues of the natural realm. Okay, thank you. An idea? Yes, thank you. Yeah. And thank you. I uh, wasn't hearing anybody out there. I was afraid everybody was asleep. So, inerrancy. Probably a key passage that speaks of inerrancy. Psalm 19, 7 through
0: 9. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. So,
1: now he's using several terms here to refer to scripture. The first little phrase there is, The law of the Lord is perfect. So, if there is any imperfection, any error, any fault... In the law, the psalmist couldn't say the law of the Lord is perfect. It goes on. The testimony of the Lord, there's a different word there. The testimony of the Lord is sure. If there were any defects, then you wouldn't have that surety or that confidence. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple, he goes on. The precepts of the Lord are right. If there's anything that is wrong in Scripture, not true to life, not true to reality, then that statement could not be made. So the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord, or the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So if there is any impurity or any defect, uh, the psalmist couldn't make that statement. So he's emphasizing inerrancy here. And then it says here, the fear of the Lord is clean. So if there's any impurity or uncleanness, again, same thing. Fear of the Lord is clear, clean, enduring forever. The judgment of the Lord are now true. They are righteous altogether. Psalm nineteen, seven through nine. Now, Jesus is not making a statement of inerrancy in Matthew 5.18, but he is at least implying it when he makes a statement. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now, it's interesting that he uses New American Standard translates the smallest letter. That's the Yud. And on the screen there, I've got some characters of the Hebrew alphabet in their relative size with respect to one another. So you have alphabet, gimel, dalet, etc. And then you have Yud. That's the smallest letter that Jesus is referring to. He's referring to a Yud there. In fact, you could translate it that way. And it's about the size of a comma. So it's much smaller than all the other letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So Jesus is saying, not even the smallest letter, the yud, or a stroke, shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. The word stroke there is the the seraph. And what a seraph in the Hebrew alphabet, well, there's the yud. The Hebrew alphabet is this projection from a letter and the only difference between a bait is that little projection that the bait has and the cough does not. That's the only difference between those two letters. And what Jesus is saying is his word is going to endure. Not even one of these little parts of letters are going to go away. Similarly, there's a difference between a dalit and a Resh. The only difference is that little projection on the dalit that is absent on the Resh. And that's called a seraph. So that in- implies that God is going to not only preserve his word, but to the point of inerrancy. In other words, it's not going to lose any letters even, ultimately. So that's inerrancy. And we believe that in another doctrine of bibliology called canonicity, and what we mean by canonicity is we refer to the 66 books. So in bibliology, you'll go through some of the principles that we believe were the factors that decided which books were included in the canon, and I believe, based on a few passages like the very end of Second Peter, where the last book that Peter writes towards the end of his life, uh, he makes a reference to the writings of Paul, and in that context he refers to Paul as Scripture. In other words, men will try to distort some of the things he writes are difficult. Men will distort it like they do the rest of the scriptures. Peter had a sense that by the end of his lifetime, at least the writings of Paul, he considered scripture. But it may even include uh, books like Matthew and James, which were already written uh, when he refers to the rest of scripture. Uh, He may be including them as well, as well, obviously, of the Old Testament. So we believe in canonicity, and I believe that most of the books, if not all of them, were recognized as inspired as they were received. Now, later, there were church councils that made official the canon And there was debate then, but the canon, I don't think, was set, for example, in 397 in the Council of Carthage, where the canon was closed, and scholars decided that the 66 books were the content of Scripture. So, canonicity is an area that you will study as well, but we believe in the 66 books, so when we speak of inspiration or revelation, inspiration, and inerrancy. That's what we are referring to is those 66 books. There's also the issue of transmission. What do we have today? I'm going to give you a brief introduction to this
0: whole area later on. The Bible that we have today, and there's a legitimate
1: claim that is made is that uh, there are in fact errors you might say we would call them variants and I'll explain the difference when we talk about I'm going to give you an introduction to textual criticism so when the text was transmitted from the first century or in the Old Testament transmitted through all of the Old Testament time and then all the way to our day we don't have any of the writings of the original authors. All we have are copies of copies, many generations of copies. So the issue is often raised by the skeptic. Well, how can you trust the Bible? How can you trust these late manuscripts? Uh, we'll address that issue and talk some more about the transmission of the text. So. We'll talk about textual criticism and the whole science. This is a whole science. And by the way, it's not just a biblical science. In fact, we take the principles of the broader science of textual criticism and we apply them to the documents of the scriptures. But textual criticism is another well-established scientific endeavor. and What it attempts to do is determine the originals of any area of writing when the originals do not exist. So from copies, you compare those copies and try to determine the originals. So all of the departments of classics in all of the universities throughout the world, and most major universities have a classics department, where they study primarily the Greek classics, but others as well. Uh, they utilize the science of textual criticism to try to determine what did Aristotle write? Uh, what did uh, uh, the historian, the Greek historians, what did they write? Because we don't have the originals, so you have to go through the process of textual criticism to recreate, if you will, the originals. Uh, so textual criticism is an established science that we utilize as believers and apply the same principles to the biblical text. And the bottom line, and I can give you several quotes and I'll give you more later, but Giesler, an apologist, says that there is more abundant and accurate manuscript evidence for the New Testament than any other book from the ancient world. So if you try to discredit the Bible, you are essentially uh, throwing out all of the classical departments in all of the secular universities that exist today. So I'll give you an introduction to that. I'm just kind of outlining it here to kind of get you into, into the, uh, the course here. So to summarize some of what we've talked about here. God has revealed his thoughts. We call that special revelation. Now, God has revealed himself in a general way as well. Uh, We're not going to talk so much about that, but we're talking about God's special revelation. God revealed his thoughts to the original authors. And those thoughts, he inspired those authors to pen and record those thoughts. That's inspiration. Those authors wrote what we identify as original autographs or original documents. They're called autographs in the literature that you read. And the autographs make up the canon of scripture. We just talked about canonicity. And that canon of scripture includes the 66 books. Now, today, we look at the 66 books from what we have in terms of copies of those books. We apply the principles of textual criticism to reconstruct the original autographs. And we do that, and we come up with a biblical text. So we have a Hebrew, predominantly Hebrew in the Old Testament, biblical text, and a Greek text for the New Testament, and Aramaic for those few passages that are in Aramaic. And that biblical text, now, this is where translations come. They go to the... Hebrew text, or the Greek text, or the Aramaic text, and translate into whatever language. In our case, it would be English. And from those translations, we have the different versions, New American Standard, King James, Jerusalem Bible, whatever. And those versions, we read, and in this course, we will limit it to the English version, But to understand even the English and or the original language, we still require illumination. So God is revealing himself to us, ultimately, beginning with the original authors that penned the autographs that are contained in the 66 books, that make up a biblical text for the Old and New Testament, that now is translated into a language that we understand. And from that, God communicates to our minds. And that's part of what we want to accomplish in that course. Now, if we understand accurately that particular biblical text, now we can communicate that to a lost world.
0: So that's kind of a brief outline of God's Thoughts originating in him
1: passed on to the original authors and eventually ending with you and I. So that's
0: the nature of scripture.
1: Any questions at this point on
0: scripture before we move on to the next part of the course here? Is that clear? Yes, sir. Oh, thank you. No comment. I assume it's clear. Feel free to jump
1: in. Like, who was that? Was that you, Steve, that jumped in there? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I'm not sure of the voices yet. Maybe by the end of the course I'll figure it out. Well, on the sheet that I sent you this morning, did everybody get it? The outline sheet. This is the next sheet. we completed the two outline sheets that I passed up last time for last time. So now we're uh, beginning to look at general hermeneutics. Yeah, I got it. Great. If you didn't get it, let me know. Or check your email, and hopefully everybody got it. So now we're going to get into what are these principles? What uh, What is this general hermeneutics? What is it all about? And what we want to do is describe it. First of all, what is general hermeneutics? And what are the things that we will be dealing with? And I gave you this chart last time, so just a quick review. We said hermeneutics is a broad area. we are limited it to biblical hermeneutics. And within biblical hermeneutics, you can divide hermeneutics into two parts. You can divide it into general principles, and that will be the focus of this week and the next couple of weeks. And you can separate out what we would describe as special hermeneutics, and we won't look at special hermeneutics till towards the end of the course. Somebody's got their mic on.
0: After we look at general principles, we will take those principles and apply
1: them in what is technically called exegesis or the exegetical process. The exegetical process technically includes the original languages, so exegesis includes, this if you're in the Old Testament studying Hebrew and the text in the from the Hebrew text, or in the New Testament you're studying the Bible in the Greek text. But, the principles, I'm going to give you the same principles. I, I've taught Greek exegesis the first, or actually the second year of Greek, where we actually go into the technical area of exegesis. You you learn the language first, first year students, and then the second year we get into exegesis. So I taught the course. But I put together this course using the same principles. So the principles are the same, except we will just apply them from the English text. There's a few things, obviously, additional when you deal with the Greek and the Hebrew. But So we could call it exegesis in a more loose way and not the technical sense. Uh, the course will not include the communicating of the work that you will do in exegesis. Uh, we call that exposition, but the broader definition of hermeneutics would include the communicating of the biblical text as well, and exposition can come in many forms. We talked about that. Uh, not just from the pulpit, it can come in a small group, it can come discipling one-on-one, studying scripture together, or even counseling
0: sessions. So it can come in many forms. So that's hermeneutics broadly. Let's take a look at the terms for hermeneutics. This will help you understand a little background. Hermeneutics actually comes from a Greek word
1: or a family of Greek words that occur in the New Testament. The noun form, hermeneia, simply can be defined or used in the sense of an interpretation. Something
0: that is interpreted. That's the noun form. You might turn, or at least think about Acts chapter 14.
1: There's a passage that develops a little bit of the background, or at least reveals to us something of the background of this term hermeneia, and the verb form as well, it comes from Greek mythology. And let me read a passage to you. Normally in class, I would have the students read, but this, I don't know, this might be a little too awkward. So I'll just read it to you, beginning...
0: Let's begin in verse 11. Now, this is Paul and Barnabas at
1: Lystra on, on uh, the first missionary journey. So they're there to share Christ with the people of Lystra. And verse 11, and when the multitude saw what Paul, so he's speaking to a crowd here, Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. Now, obviously these people, these are Gentiles, these are unbelievers, so they believe in Greek gods, Greek mythology. And in verse 12, And they began calling Barnabas Zeus, and Paul Hermes. Hear the sound of that? They call Paul Hermes, And it gives an explanation because he was the chief speaker. So Paul is the chief speaker. And in this Greek mythology, their main god was Zeus. And he's identified in this passage. So they believed in Zeus. And Hermes was the interpreter or the speaker of Zeus. Some of the gods were elevated, and I guess you could even say close to transcendent. I I don't want to use that word, but they were distant, you might say. That's probably a better way of describing them. And sometimes they would have these mediators or interpreters. So they identify Barnabas as Zeus because he's quiet, he's distant, and Paul as Hermes because he's the speaker. And that's what the text says, because he was the, the chief speaker. And the chief priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, so this is a pagan city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. And in verse 14, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, saying, men, why are you doing these things? So basically trying to correct the record there. They're not mythological gods that somehow have manifested themselves here. But the key thing to notice from that, Hermes was the interpreter or he was the mediator between humans and Zeus. So Hermes would speak the mind or the thoughts of Zeus, interpret the thoughts, and communicate. The word Hermes is where the word Hermeneia would come from, and the passage that we just read, Acts 14, or, yeah, 14.11 through 14. So that's a little bit of the background. So the idea of Hermeneia is the idea of interpretation. Now, there's also a verbal form, hermeneo, that's a verbal form. So, it has the verbal idea to translate something. Now, both these words occur in the New Testament. Hermeneia occurs only two times in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. I won't read verse 10, but let me read 14.26, 1 Corinthians 14.26. Obviously, Paul is writing, What then shall we say, brothers? And this is the context of spiritual gifts. In fact, both these passages are in the context of spiritual gifts. And let me pick up where I left off. When, When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or, do you remember what's in What's in the passage there? An interpretation. A hermeneia. Now, what is in view here is the gift of interpretation. And some would be able to give an interpretation. So, there's hermeneia. So, the the word hermeneutics is derived from hermeneia that comes out of the New Testament. Now, the verbal form occurs in four places John one thirty eight, one forty two, nine seven, and Hebrews seven two. And in every one of those in the New American Standard
0: it translated as translate. But you could also you could also uh translate it as interpretation. And for
1: example, John one thirty eight Rabbi, I can't remember, is it, uh, who's speaking there, is that Nathaniel? I don't remember, I'll have to look it up. Uh, he says, Rabbi, which is Hebrew for teacher, Rabbi, translated, means teacher. Or, you could say, interpreted, means teacher. So, the idea of interpretation in the verbal form, or to translate. Now, there's other
0: forms that occur with prepositions before uh Dia Menuo Luke twenty four twenty seven, where it
1: says, and beginning with Mo this is Jesus speaking, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained or translated or interpreted to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. We have uh or with the dia preposition. And there's other forms as well, but uh, those are kind of the, the main ones. Now there's another term that is biblical that we already talked about, Exegomai. that has the idea of to explain something,
0: so it's very similar in terms of This hermeneutical area.
1: And what does that sound like? What English word does that sound like? Can you think of it?
0: Exegesomai. What word have you been using? Exegesis. Exegesis.
1: Very good. To explain, and in a very important passage... It occurs in John 1.18, and it's in reference to Christ. It says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, that's Jesus, he has exegeted him. Exegeo there. Or New American Standard translates it. He has explained him. So, The word exegesis is also a biblical word, and you can find it in the New Testament, and it was a word that was used in the first century. So
0: those are some of the, the terms, and let's complete this, and then we'll take a break. Let me see if I can get to a good stopping point. I think I showed this slide
1: before, the heart of everything that we will be doing in this hermeneutics course, I think is summarized very well by one of the course texts, Mickelson. Everything that we will be doing in hermeneutics is geared to helping us, and hermeneutics gives us the principles to find out meaning. And the exegetical process will be the process to derive or to arrive at that meaning. So it's to find out the meaning of a statement for the author. In other words, what did the author attempt to communicate? And for the first hearers or readers. That's the bottom line. In other words, we want to understand what God was communicating to that original author and original audience. That's interpretation. We'll talk about that. When we are satisfied that we understand what the original author meant and take into account what the first hearers or readers understood, now we're in a position to do the last part and thereupon to transmit that meaning to modern readers. Now, there's also an applicational step that we'll insert in there as well. In other words, derive first derive the meaning of the original author, including how the first hearers and readers understood it, and then we can apply that meaning to us, and apply it to those that we minister to, and also to transmit it, or communicate it to a modern audience. So the bottom line is that we are attempting to Derive the author's intended or willed meaning. Everything that we're going to do in the course is geared to get us at that point. And I also, this is just a quick review of what we talked about. How do we get there? What are the exegetical tools that we utilize? I'm going to hopefully fill your toolbox full so that you're in a position to draw from those tools to determine a meaning of any passage anywhere in the scriptures. Three major areas that we'll talk about. We'll talk about the laws of grammar. So the better we understand the grammar of a passage, that's going to help us in understanding the passage itself. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of kind of A personal story to help you and perhaps encourage you. I was never good at grammar, so this was an obstacle I had to overcome in order to understand God's Word. But it's crucial and important that we take into account the laws of grammar. And secondly, the facts of history because of the nature of the book we're dealing with. It is in a context of history. And there are facts related to every book. We take those into account. And we utilize the framework of context. And within that framework, now we apply all the other principles, but th- these are the main ones. Uh, now we can understand what an author intended to communicate. Now, I'll introduce what we describe as the grammatical, historical, contextual approach. That is the approach that we will utilize in in this course. And it contains all of these principles that have been well developed over time and uh, puts them together in a way that we can utilize them. So it's called grammatical, because it takes into account the grammar. It's called historical, because it takes into account the facts of history. And I like to add contextual. So grammatical, historical, contextual approach, because it also includes the framework of context. Now, a lot of the books will abbreviate it and describe it as the grammatical, historical approach. So if you see that, It's talking about what we're talking about here. It's not omitting context necessarily, but it's more of an abbreviated way. It makes the title a little bit shorter.
0: Right. Where does does literal fit into that? Is that under grammatical? Literal? Yes. Because we have Uh, a literal, a a consistent literal
1: literal interpretation. Yeah, Yeah, I'll explain that as well. Literal is just another
0: abbreviation of grammatical historical contextual. Yeah, I'll talk about that. Okay, thanks. But that, yeah, that's a good question.
1: Well, let's go ahead and I think it's a good time to take a break. Everybody ready to do some stretching and why don't we take about 10 minutes, try to come back. I don't know what your clock says. Mine says a little, a little bit past 15. After, so,
0: 25 to 30 minutes, we'll take a break. Any questions before we take off here? Everything clear? I don't have any other
2: questions. Is the word nature and aspect, are you using them synonymously, or is there a difference in there?
0: I think I
1: used them pretty, that, term pretty synonymously
2: okay great thank you
1: yeah there are distinctions but i kind of used them similarly yep yeah feel free to jump in i think it worked so far and even if i'm in the middle i'll kind of acknowledge that you jumped in so any other questions
0: Well, let's pick up where we left off last hour.
1: I gave you something of a description of general hermeneutics, and let's talk a little bit about why we need hermeneutics. I think some of it is obvious. So I'll start with some of the more obvious reasons. First of all, it's to understand accurately and in studying scripture, not only because of the nature of scripture, but also because of the distance between us and scripture, scripture is not always easily understandable. So the The main need is to be able to understand what God has communicated. And being believers, we want to be careful and not miss what God wants to speak to us. But that begins with a proper understanding of the text itself. So this is the primary need that we have for hermeneutics, is to understand the scriptures accurately. One writer says, to ascertain what God has said in sacred scripture to determine the meaning of the word of God. And because there's a great potential to misunderstand, and there's a lot of misunderstanding within the body of Christ, within the church, it is very important that we utilize good approaches in interpreting the scripture. So hermeneutics is essential for proper understanding and then eventually the teaching of the Bible. So it guards against heresy. It guards against false doctrine, which in the culture we live in is very prevalent. Not necessarily in the churches you go to, but if you have contact with uh, believers elsewhere, you will very quickly See that there's a lot of uh, false doctrine out there. And a lot of conflicting interpretations. And even without, within our own circles, there's, in some areas, there's some room for debate and discussion. And in some cases, there are, there are different views that are still orthodox, that are not false doctrines. So how do you evaluate and how do you How do you make up your own mind? So that's one of the needs that we have in hermeneutics. Anytime you have communication, you have someone that is communicating. In scripture, we have is a communicator. They're trying to convey a message. And that message is communicated to an audience. We call them a receptor or a receptor. And sometimes... The communicator is not clear, or sometimes the receptor is not listening or not paying attention or not careful in listening. So the message somehow uh, gets, gets miscommunicated in some cases. So anytime there's communication, there's the potential and the need for understanding. And that's also true in the case of Scripture as well. When it comes to scripture, we have a biblical author and then we have the biblical text that the biblical author communicated and we still have access to it today so we can read it. And we first want to understand how that ancient audience understood that communication and now we're in a position to understand how it can apply to the culture in which we live in. So we're talking about communication of a very special nature of the biblical text. Secondly, there are bridges that need, or gaps that need bridging to get across. And there are many of them. The first gap is language itself. Now, part of that gap is bridged by a good translation. But to really fully get the precision that we might need or want, we want to go to the original languages. And it was good to hear that some of you are studying at least Greek. Maybe eventually some of you will get into the Hebrew language as well. But because the Bible is not written in English or any other language other than Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, there's that gap that needs to be bridged. And sometimes translations need to be examined as well to see how well they bridge that gap. There's the gap of history. We are separated at least 2,000 years from the last writing of, of Scripture. So, because of that gap, many things have changed. We live in a different time frame. We have additional history, and sometimes we're not aware of the biblical history because we're separated from it, so we want to bridge the gap of history. Hermeneutics helps us do that. Along with history, there's the gap of culture, our culture is radically different from any of the cultures that are represented in scripture going all the way back to pre-flood cultures. Now pre-flood cultures were also very, very different from say, let's say New Testament culture. So the New Testament had to bridge those gaps as well, but we are even further removed and our culture is much further removed from all of the cultures, including patriarchal cultures, uh, Egyptian culture, or whatever culture that is in view in any given passage, and certainly also New Testament culture. So we want to bridge those gaps. Hermeneutics gives us guidelines, gives us guardrails, helps us to, to look at things in terms of culture. We have a literary culture. We have spoke of the literary nature of the Bible. The Bible is unique in a lot of ways, but it also has some similarities, but there are gaps that we need to get a bridge there as well. Not only historical, but a chronological gap. The Bible, in some parts, is not... Presented in chronological order, so you have to kind of work through some of the chronology and come up with a biblical chronology that hermeneutics helps us to develop as well. The geography is different. Nothing in the Bible took place in the the United States. We have features, geographical features, that may be similar. I live in the, the southwest And our geography, or our geology, you might even say, or the geological features are similar. We live in a very dry climate here, much like Israel. So there's some similarities, but still there's a lot of differences. So we need to bridge that gap. And just to give you a picture of where I come from, An example, when the Bible speaks of mountains, for example, these are the Sandia Mountains. I can see them from my house. And they're typical of mountains in the, the Rocky Mountain Range. Some of you may be familiar with them, but you have jagged peaks. The mountain comes to a peak and rapidly, in some cases, drops off. As you can see, the face there at the very top there. Uh, whereas in, in Israel, when it speaks of mountains or mounts, or it refers to cities, here in Albuquerque, you build cities in the valley, or here in New Mexico, and most places in the U.S., and uh, you don't build them on the top of the mountain. But in Israel, the cities are built on tells, in other words, the tops of hills or mountains. And this is an aerial shot of Lachish. And there would have been a wall that you can't quite make out, but if you look carefully at the edge of the top, there would have been an ancient wall that protected the city. There's an entrance to the right there with gate, with a gate that kept invaders out. The reason they built on the mounds is for protection in Military reasons, they would farm the area below. Uh, The elite, if it was a smaller mound, would live on the top. But if there was an invasion, the citizens would flee to inside the walls as well. So when we speak of geographical features, sometimes there's these radical differences. And this is just one example of the mountains in the Middle East as opposed to those in the Rocky Mountain Range. So we have geographical features that we need to bridge. And, and by the way, another geographical feature is, let's see, some of you are at sea level, some of you are not. I'm at uh, mile high. I'm over 5,000 feet in elevation. Whereas in Israel, a lot of the land, particularly along the Jordan, uh, the Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea, are all below sea level and uh, considerably below. So these geographical features sometimes come into play in some passages. So we need to bridge the geographical gaps. There's a supernatural gap. We're dealing with a supernatural book that has supernatural elements to it. And those need to be taken into account. We have God as the ultimate author. We have human authors, but we have the Holy Spirit inspiring writers to reveal the thoughts and mind of God. Even, you might even say philosophically, there are gaps. We we can speak of a biblical worldview as opposed to a secular worldview, if you don't Train yourself. If you, if you don't immerse yourself in the biblical worldview, then by default, you will operate within a secular, non-biblical worldview of the culture in which you come from. So there are philosophical gaps as well. Hermeneutics helps us to overcome these gaps in order to get at the meaning of the original authors. And Here's the example of interpreting the Constitution, and that's the whole function, or at least it was set up uh, to interpret the Constitution. There's a whole way of thinking today that goes against that, but that's another issue. So the judges, their primary function is to bridge the gaps of a shorter history and a shorter difference in culture but to arrive at the intent of the original framers of the Constitution. Similarly, we are attempting to do the same, and we have uh, greater gaps to overcome, so we have a greater need for hermeneutics. Thirdly, it's to overcome subjectivity. We all have our own issues or our own attitudes or our own backgrounds. Not all of us were raised necessarily in a Christian home, so we have a variety of things that might hinder us from clearly understanding what God has to say. And from those perspectives, there's some subjectivity that needs to be overcome. Hermeneutics helps us be aware of some of those things and also sets boundaries that help us keep us on track as well and we need hermeneutics in order to do effective exegesis hermeneutics are the rules exegesis is the applying of the rules so you can't do exegesis without the the rules so you need them for bible study or exegesis and finally and these aren't all of them but there's a need to apply And if we misapply, or if we misunderstand a passage, then we are very likely to misapply it as well, to improperly imply. And coincidentally, a couple of Sundays ago, I was teaching in the Book of Romans, and there was a question about application. So I gave a little bit of uh, teaching on properly applying. And the example that was used was of another believer in the same church that was interpreting or applying a passage in a wrong way. And the question centered on uh, why it was wrong, and that's why I gave a little explanation. But it stemmed from a faulty understanding of the biblical text. So you have to have a good understanding of the biblical text to properly apply And we'll expand upon all of these, and we'll eventually get to
0: application as well. So that's the hermeneutical need. And you'll notice on the outline sheet that I gave
1: you, normally you would deal with the history of hermeneutics early on, but because of the structure of the course. Uh, I don't want to take the time to do it at this point. This is something that we can always deal with and come back to. So let me just give you a thumbnail sketch, enough so that you'll be aware of some of the background and history of hermeneutics. And I'm going to do that with the approaches as well. We'll we'll just give you a thumbnail sketch, and then we'll move on. And we'll come back to that and do that at the, the end of the course after we've gone through the exegetical process. So, you can divide the history of interpretation using the same historical breakdowns that that church history uses. So, if you're familiar with church history, in church history you would uh, even, or even go before church history, you would go into a Jewish period. This is before the church, before the first century. So, there is a background of Jewish interpretation, and I'll give you a little bit more detail, but you need to be aware that there are a variety of hermeneutical approaches within Judaism itself. One of the battles that Jesus had was with Jewish leaders that came from that Jewish culture and that Jewish background, that had, in some ways, a faulty hermeneutic. So Jesus, in some ways, in some context, was dealing with hermeneutical issues, differences of interpretation that arose in Judaism as a result of departures from a proper hermeneutic. There's what's called Jewish allegorism. I'll give you more detail, as I said, but uh, just as an example, There was a tendency amongst some of the jews in fact there were two schools of thought one was more allegorical one was more literal or what we would classify as grammatical historical contextual so the jewish period runs from about 460 to about 550 a.d now you know 550 didn't stop but that's kind of a round number time frame that would include the jewish period We have the patristic period, the period immediately after the New Testament. This is the early church after the book of Acts, actually, where the church fathers have lots of interpretation. And again, there's at least two different schools that arose during that period of time. Some allegorization as well, as well as literal. So you have both types of interpretation, two systems of interpretation. This patristic period runs from about ninety five to five ninety a d kind of paralleling the last part of the Jewish period. We have the Middle Ages where scriptures were not studied individually and personally uh, primarily by the leadership from about five ninety to fifteen hundred so there was a lot of issues that took place in there in that time frame and but again, a literal or grammatical historical contextual approach persisted throughout all of these periods, but deviations also in varying degrees also uh, are found in those periods of time. Now we have the Reformation in the 16th century, and in reality, the, we could say a lot about it, but the main thing to note about interpretation during the Reformation is that the Reformation was founded basically on a Reformation of hermeneutics. A return to a more literal interpretation from the degeneration that took place in the Middle Ages. So in reality, the spiritual Reformation, or the Biblical Reformation, is founded on a hermeneutical revela- uh, Reformation that took place in the 16th century. Then we have a post-Reformation, 17th and 18th century, where you begin to see not only responses from the Catholic Church, but you also have uh, deviations and development of the literal approach, more detail more principles, but you also have deviations from grammatical, historical. And in the modern period, uh, a greater deviation, and in some ways even to some extent a losing of a literal interpretation except as a minority view. And we would be the ones in the minority from about the 19th century to the 21st century. So that's a thumbnail sketch of the history of interpretation. In summary, the literal approach has its roots deep into Jewish history, deep into the Old Testament, has persisted to this very day, because I think it's the proper approach, but throughout these periods you have deviations in different forms. So that's a thumbnail sketch of the history of hermeneutics. Next, we want to look at these approaches, these different approaches. And again, we'll look at them in more detail at the end. So what I want to focus in on is the proper hermeneutics. And then we'll be in a better position to contrast them towards the end. So there's some basic approaches that we can look at. And the first basic one is... Described as the allegorical approach. Now, I don't think there's anyone that I know of, any writer or any scholar that is entirely allegorical. In the history of the church, there have been varying degrees of the use of allegorism. Uh, some more so than others, obviously. But strictly speaking, Bernard Ram gives the definition of the allegorical approach is behind the obvious and normal or literal, or we might even say grammatical, historical, contextual meaning, meaning is the real meaning of a passage. Now, when we go into some detail, I'll explain a little bit, kind of some thinking that came about and produced the allegorical. But at its essence, what you're looking at is more a spiritual or non-literal meaning of a text. And if that is the priority, then, then I think you have a very defective and problematic approach. So we'll expand that a little bit further. One of the things or one of the problems with allegorical is it imposes... What we would describe as isegesis. Isegesis is similar to the word exegesis and I mentioned that uh, exegesis is a Greek word that we find in the New Testament. And the 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 word has ek, the Greek word ek or preposition that precedes it that basically uh, defines what exegesis is. So also, eisegesis has a Greek preposition that somewhat defines what it is all about. So, an English dictionary, Random House, says, "...an interpretation, especially of scripture, that expresses the interpreter's own ideas, biases, or the like." rather than the meaning of the text, and what we would say, rather than the meaning uh, intended by the original author. So that's eisegesis. Eisegesis comes in a, a variety of forms, and I would classify the allegorical approach as predominantly eisegesis. But eisegesis is not something that... All the others do and we do not. Our, our natural tendency is to, in some ways, to make the text or we're inclined to see in the text things in the text that we want to see in it or make it say the things that we want it to say. So we want to avoid eisegesis. There's the Greek preposition ice which has the idea of in or into something, the preposition. So, eisegesis is reading a meaning that is not in the text, reading that meaning into the text, making the text say what that meaning dictates. That's what we want to avoid. We want to continue or we want to develop exegesis. There's the ek preposition, and ek in Greek means out or out of or out from in some context, and what we mean when we talk about exegesis, we want to bring out the meaning that is contained in the text, as opposed to reading a meaning from outside of the text into the text We want to go to the text and let the text speak for itself, draw out that meaning, because that is the meaning in the text that the original author intended. Does that make clear what we are attempting to do? And at this point, eisegesis is very, it's not an approach, but it's a, it's more of a tendency, and I believe Many of the other approaches, like the allegorical approach, it's reading things into the text rather than letting the text speak for itself, using the guidelines that proper hermeneutics will supply to us. Another major approach is what is called liberal, or some describe it as a rationalistic approach.
0: And the main thing that uh, differs from our approach, the liberal
1: approach very early departed from exegesis and began to impose more of an attitude or an approach that put re- the reasoning of man over what the scripture teaches. So it's an undermining of one of the major principles that we will develop that deals with the spiritual aspects. Liberals departed from a a literal approach in that they had a hard time with miracles, for one, particularly. But more broadly, they had a hard time with God intervening in history and doing supernatural acts. So there was more of a kind of a secular or a non-spiritual approach to Scripture that dictated how these passages were interpreted. So, the emphasis was trying to come up with a reasonable interpretation that fit what man could envision. In other words, that didn't go beyond uh humanistic ideas. So, there's a lot of humanistic ideas, and it wasn't long that evolutionary ideas and other rationalistic ideas came into the system of interpretation. Uh, Kind of the buzzword or phrase is reason overshadows revelation. So if you can't conceive of how something could have happened, even though the revelation is clear, well, your reason overshadows it. So attempts to explain the miracles of Christ, for example, is a popular part of this approach. So liberalism, and most of the denominations, as you know, the major denominations, many of them have gone liberal, and as a result, they've also abandoned scripture. That's where this approach ends up, an abandonment of scripture. Now, they attempt to be scientific, or they say that they are scientific and they want to use science, but they're actually using scientism, I believe, and I'll demonstrate that the approach that we utilize Uh, will actually be more scientific. So, liberalism, or commonly also referred to as rationalistic approach. So, that's just a thumbnail sketch. There's other approaches as well. Some of them departures from the two that I emphasized, the allegorical and the uh, liberal approach. So, let's begin taking a look let me give you a little introduction to the approach that we will take the and we will look at the essential principles and let me discuss what we call this approach we call it the grammatical historical contextual method and remember i mentioned and I'll show you that slide again, the reason for grammatical, historical, contextual method. It's often and popularly described as the literal method. Now, that's not the best description because it sometimes makes people think, well, are there no figures of speech in Scripture? Uh, what do you mean by literal? Does it... Mean that uh, there's not any metaphorical language? well, no, it's just used in a in the literal sense, not in a wooden literal sense, but in a literal sense that includes kind of the plain or more obvious or the uh, more natural meaning of a biblical passage now I would include. In this literal definition, if you will, it seeks the author's intended meaning. And that's what the grammatical historical contextual method guides us to. So when we say literal, we're meaning author's intent. Therefore, if an author intends to use a simile, or if an author intends to use A metaphor or if he intends to use even a symbol he will give you clues in his writing that he's departing from a more strictly literal sense so the grammatical historical contextual method we abbreviate it or simply refer to it sometimes as literal so if I speak of the literal method that's what I'm referring to and like I said before A lot of the literature, in fact, the bulk of the literature will refer to this approach as grammatical-historical, and they'll leave off the contextual, but they are intending the same thing. They're intending grammatical-historical-contextual, and sometimes those same writers will refer to the literal. So, when we speak of literal, Webster says, based on the actual words in their ordinary meaning, not figurative or symbolic. Now, I would modify that and I would say based on the actual words in their ordinary meaning, not figurative or symbolic, unless the author gives you little details in the text to let you know that he's using figurative or symbolic language. Does that make sense? Bernard Graham defines it in this way. The basic, customarily, or customary, In other words, how you would normally interpret a passage, socially designated meaning, normal according to the received laws of language. That's what he means by literal. So when we speak of literal in terms of the interpretation of scripture, we're not excluding figurative language. In fact, I will give you a major hermeneutical principle, I'll call it the metaphorical principle. So we'll talk about it that deals with metaphorical language. And there's an abundance of metaphorical language in Scripture. So we'll talk about that later. And again, the grammatical historical contextual method determines meaning using the laws of grammar, the facts of history, and the framework of context. Now, where do we derive this, or how can we validate it? Uh, how can we give a defense for it? Well, if you take a careful look at the New Testament, how did Jesus, how did the Apostles, how did they approach the Old Testament when they interpreted Scripture is there any evidence that uh, they used the principles that we will develop that we describe as grammatical, historical, contextual? And the answer, overwhelmingly, is yes. This is the way that Jesus approached the Old Testament, and the apostles followed that same pattern. Just a few examples. For example, when uh, when Jesus refers to early passages in the book of Genesis, He's looking at real historical people. That's a historical aspect that lived in a particular time frame. In other words, when he refers to Adam and Eve, he viewed them as real people. And when he treats passages that deal with them, he approaches those Genesis passages in a literal way. And so also do the the apostles as they they follow. So... He treats historical narrative as straightforward records of fact. And he refers not only to Adam and Eve, but Abel and Noah and Abraham and Moses, referring to creation. He refers to Sodom and Gomorrah and other historical notes. And there seemed to be no tendency to allegorize or divide scripture into these different allegorical levels. There's no evidence for it in the New Testament. Uh, The scribes and the Pharisees that confronted Jesus, they accused Jesus of many things, but they never accuse him of abusing the word. Or they never challenge his hermeneutical approach. In fact, he denounces some of those leaders for their misuse of scripture. So, we could say that the New Testament practice lends itself to the grammatical, historical, contextual method.
0: Now, there are,
1: I should note, that in some of the quotations, and particularly of the Apostles, in the New Testament, there are some issues that are raised by sometimes the way that they, they quote some Old Testament passages. And we'll deal with that. Uh, we won't spend too much time on it. That's more of an issue of, of uh, uh, the next course. Uh, we call, it, what do we call it? it? It's not advanced. I can't remember the name of it. But it's, it, it goes beyond this course, uh, beyond basic hermeneutics. So we'll, I'll give you an introduction to how the New Testament uses Old Testament passages or Old Testament quotes. But there, in some of those cases, it almost seems like the Apostles are reading things into the passages, but we'll take another look at it. So that's the first defense that we can offer. Secondly, this is the usual passage in interpreting any literature. And... In general, uh, we use the same principles that have been used throughout time in interpreting any literature because they are applicable to the Bible because the Bible has some of the characteristics
0: of all and other literature. We also have validation.
1: This is the only approach that includes in the approach... Ways of validating the interpretation that we come up with. So we can test whether or not our interpretation is consistent and and valid and we'll get into that when we get into the exegetical process. So it's the only way to, to control the exegetical abuses that are rampant in our culture. This approach includes a validating aspect to it.
0: So, uh, also, fourthly, we could say the literal,
1: in the more strictly literal sense, you have to have it before you have any foundation or basis for any metaphorical language that might appear in Scripture. So, you have to start with a literal interpretation in order to have guidelines and a foundation to be able to understand how an author may in fact be using a legitimate form of communication that we call metaphorical. So that's a little introduction to the grammatical, historical, contextual approach. In the time remaining, I'd like to look at at least the first what I describe as essential principles and before I do that let me see if there are any questions
0: anyone have any questions so far all of next week
1: we will continue we won't get through these essential principles even all of next session, and it'll spill over into our
0: fourth session. But any questions before we start on the first major principle? Everybody's okay? I'm okay. I'm okay.
1: Okay. Great. If I don't hear anything, I'll assume everything's fine or you're fast asleep, one or the other. Okay, the first principle, obviously, when we're talking about grammatical, historical, contextual, has to do with grammatical, or we call it linguistic. And what I mean by the linguistic principle, this encompasses that grammatical aspect, and we could uh, define it as Define or determining meaning by the conventions of language. So a real simple description. Determining meaning by the conventions of language. So all of the ins and outs of language. Of which my background I had lots of problems with. I hope I've to some extent overcome some of that in. In dealing with language, I'll tell you the story later, but determining meaning by the conventions of language. So all of the things that language has about it includes this linguistic principle. So it's a very broad principle. So this is principle number one. Within this principle, we have a lot of detail to it it, because it includes all of the detail of grammar all of the detail of linguistics, all of the detail of literature. So the linguistic principle is a very broad principle. But it basically gives you some guidance in terms of looking at what is on the page, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, sometimes word by word, phrase by phrase. How are those phrases connected? How are they put together? How are they related? All of that contributes to meaning and understanding. So we're determining meaning by the conventions of language. Very broad. Now, this is important. And I put it first because this is the starting point. And this is the probably, if you want to give weight, this is probably the most most important of all of the principles. One of the main reasons is because we believe in verbal inspiration. And remember, we define verbal inspiration as dealing with the very words of Scripture. So, we deal with words, not only individually, but words as they're related to one another. That's verbal inspiration. And we have a high regard for the words that God superintended, that ended up as making up all of the passages that we will endeavor to study in Scripture. Secondly, it's important because of the image of God and language. Part of the image of God, and this goes all the way back to Genesis, and in the book of Genesis we recognize that God created man, it gets into a little theology here, the theology of man or anthropology. We believe in the nature of man as having the image of God. God created us in his image. Now, we believe that the fall had drastic effects. But James refers to even the unbeliever as created in the image of God. So there's something of the image of God that remains in man even after the fall. And one part of the image of God is the ability to communicate and the ability to use language. So we trace language back to God himself. God is the creator. In fact, God is the first one that originates language. Language occurs for the very first time in Genesis 1-3, where it says, God said, God is speaking So, language, speaking, communication finds its origin not in man, but finds its origin in God himself. And God created a universe by speaking it into existence. So, language is founded and originated in God himself, and part of the image of God is God built man with the ability to form thoughts and to be able to communicate those thoughts to himself initially. In other words, God created language so that man could communicate back with God. And then man could also communicate with himself or other other people. Adam and Eve spoke to one another. But God is the one that built all that is needed to communicate within man from the forming of the thoughts to all of the equipment that he's built into man, not just a voice box, but we use our tongue, we use our palate, we use our lungs, we uh, we uh even use body language to communicate. God built all that in. So the linguistic principle is the starting point. Uh, A reason why it's important. And coming to scripture, God chose to communicate, not at least uh, permanently, not through visions necessarily, not through dreams. Although he used those means, but he utilized language. And in the case of the Bible, written language, Greek, Aramaic and Hebrew. God is the inventor of language. God has given the parameters of language. Language doesn't come from man, it comes from God. And because of that, language is important. And once I realized the importance of language, I disciplined myself to not only learn Greek and Hebrew, but also well Greek and Hebrew, but also to be able to utilize the that understanding in understanding the meaning of biblical passages. So God communicates using language. So the better we're equipped to be able to utilize language, and even the English text, particularly a good translation, God utilizes the English text to communicate to us in the 21st century. So he uses language, so it's important. So this is the whole goal of exegesis, is to understand those written words in the biblical text and how those words relate to communicate ideas that ultimately go back to the thoughts that God expressed. And we're trying to understand the mind of God, the thoughts of God, because he desires to communicate to us, and this is the main means that he has chosen to communicate to mankind is through his word. So, this is a very important area. So, what are some of the areas of the linguistic principle that we can break down? I just discussed language. So, language is very important, and we've been noting all along that we have Hebrew, and if you take Hebrew, you'll recognize very different lettering. In fact, in some cases, very difficult for the average person. And the Hebrew language is built on three consonants, usually. Words are often in the form of three consonants run together. And those three consonants can represent a noun. It can represent a verb or an action or an object. Depending on how it's pointed, and just like Greek, you can have prepositions before them, or you can have endings, and it adds or changes the meaning, so a three-consonantal system of language. Two words there, halal, to praise or to honor God, yada, to know, so two Hebrew words, just to give you a little feel for it.
0: Now, Hebrew was primarily used by the people of God. Now, the background, there's different theories. Some believe that Hebrew was the
1: original language that God communicated to Adam and Eve, and it's possible, and even, I think, likely and probable. At Babel, new languages were introduced. And that was an act of judgment. God brought about confusion of the language, and other language are derived from what God did in a miraculous way to change the thought patterns or whatever, or at least the communication patterns of the people such they could not communicate. And they gathered together in tribes and And nations, eventually we have the origin of the nations as well. But Hebrew, after Babel, and when the Jews became a people and then a nation, the language they used was mainly Hebrew. Now there are parts of the Old Testament, small parts, probably the, well, the biggest portion that is in Aramaic is Daniel 2 from verse 4 all the way to the, 28th verse of chapter 7, I don't remember if that's the last of it, I have to look it up, that's a big chunk, and the reason that Aramaic was used is because the children of Israel were in Babylon, Daniel was in Babylon, and that was the language of the day, in other words, that was the English of that time frame, or the lingua franca, most people spoke Aramaic, And there's some other reasons related to the text itself, why the Holy Spirit chose Aramaic. And there's other small portions and words elsewhere in Scripture where Aramaic is is the language. Uh, The language dominated from about 1550 to about 1200 BC. Now, that's not the period that Daniel writes, but that's when the language was dominant. But it was... Prominent in, in the culture, also in the time of Daniel. So those are the two Old Testament languages. If you go beyond
0: this course and take Biblical Hebrew, and if you're desirous, you can take Aramaic as well
1: later on. I would
0: I think you'd have your
1: hands full with Hebrew. The New Testament is entirely written in Greek. And if you take Greek, they'll give you probably a brief background on it. The New Testament is classified as what's called Koine or Common Greek. So the Greek of the New Testament is not this spiritualized or unique Greek. Koine means it was the Greek that was spoken in everyday conversation, everyday communication. In the Greek Empire in the, or the Roman Empire, the Hellenized Roman Empire in the first century. And that distinguishes it from the Classical period, which Greek changed over time. There's a Classical period. The ancient Greeks spoke Classical Greek. Many of the writings of that Classical period are in Classical Greek. Slight difference. Differences between that Greek and the New Testament Greek. In fact, different words in some cases. There's also the Greek that was used that is slightly different from Koine and slightly different from classical in the period when the Old Testament was translated into Greek. We call that the Septuagint. So Koine is a little bit different from the Septuagint Greek. And then there's a Byzantine Greek later, and today there is modern Greek that is spoken in, uh, Greek today. So language changes over time. That's also true of Hebrew. There are different stages in, in the Hebrew language as well. And people in Israel today speak a modern Hebrew, which is a little bit different from biblical Hebrew. So, uh, it deals with languages, and Obviously, we will be limited to English, so we'll be limited to uh, translations. But you need to be aware that hermeneutics gives guidelines for the total picture here. So, Greek has its beginnings about 3,000 years uh, to about 1,000 B.C. That's classical Greek, but it also has been spoken all the way to present time. Another issue, one that we won't get into in much detail, but I want to give you a little background on it because you'll encounter it in your Bible study. So I want you to have kind of an understanding of what is happening, even in an English text, the linguistic principle also includes what we would call the text itself. In other words, whether you're using Greek or whether you're using the Hebrew text, like I said, we're only going to be limited to the English. But you will find in your English Bibles, occasionally there'll be a note, a footnote. And the footnote might read something like, uh, some versions include this little phrase, and then it'll include the phrase in the footnote. And it might make a comment, but the majority of the manuscripts or the most important manuscripts omit it. So at that point, it might be omitted in your Bible, in your English Bible. But it'll have that footnote to let you know. And I'll give you kind of a background here so you understand what's going on with those notes. But if you take Greek exegesis, we'll go into some detail. In fact, you could take a whole course on what's called textual criticism. It's... it's Very detailed, and there's a lot of material that is covered in the course. I'll give you an introduction to it, and let me just briefly mention some things here. We'll come back to this when we get to the exegetical stage. Uh, The very significance, the greatest significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls in that... With the discovery of these scrolls in Qumran, and by the way, in our Israel trip that I told you about, that we went on last year, we visited Qumran and saw some of the scrolls, and some of them are also displayed in Israel. But this was one of the most important archaeological find of all time, because it had biblical texts, and in some cases, entire books, like the entire book of Isaiah. Before the discovery of the Dead Street Scrolls, the earliest or the oldest manuscripts that we have dated around 1000 A.D. In other words, a thousand years after the New Testament period. And in the case of things like Isaiah, that would be 1700 years removed from the writing of Isaiah. And that is the closest text that we had. With the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, much of the Old Testament, now we have copies that date before the time of the first century. They date 150 to 200 BC,
0: all the way into New Testament times. Uh, so this gave great uh,
1: data that was made available now to be able to compare these copies with the copies that we have, that we had before the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it was the, the biggest discovery in terms of textual criticism. So that's the importance of the Dead Sea Scrolls because it gives us copies of the original text closer to the writing of the text. And they come in different forms, sometimes just fragments sometimes an entire roll that contains an entire book. But every little piece, every little fragment adds to the whole science of textual criticism. And over time, we can see that the text type changed. Now, I gave you two examples here of Old Testament texts, but not part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but since the writing of the New Testament, We also have copies,
0: and some of the copies date not during the first century, but uh, after
1: the first century, the two most important manuscripts that contain the entire Bible. One of them is called Sinaiticus, and another one is called Vaticanus, and I just picture them there so you can see the difference in script. But what textual criticism does is it'll take these manuscripts, compare them with others in order to utilize the principles of textual criticism to come up with a reconstruction of the, in this case, New Testament. Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, that's Greek. So that's the New Testament, a complete New Testament. Uh, these are the most important Two manuscripts. That's why I show it. Now, several years ago, uh, I was at the
0: Vatican. Well, that's before I get there. There's Sinaiticus close up. You can compare the biblical text there.
1: Um, What I started to say, they had on display an open text of Vaticanus, and I was able to take a photograph. Now, this is before digital cameras. And you couldn't use flash, so that's why it's kind of reddish. That's more the uh, plexiglass cover that they had there. That's kind of the image that ended up. But this is the actual text. So a textual critic will look at this or photographs of it because obviously these are very valuable and they lock them up. In fact, the last time I was at the Vatican several years ago, I asked about this and they said, oh, it's locked up. So they took it away. Uh, I think it was deteriorating or whatever. But uh, this is the raw data that is used to reconstruct the Greek text that we utilize today. And just to give you a picture of other texts, the L is the lectionary. In other words, not only... Biblical texts, but sometimes we have copies of what they used within the church. A lectionary was used within the church service. And contained in a lectionary oftentimes are biblical texts. So the biblical texts that are there add to the database of biblical texts that textual critics use. And I'm just contrasting the text type. See how it's different? The different text types sometimes indicate or give us clues as to the age of the document, so they vary as well. And now that I've kind of rattled your, your confidence in the biblical text, because we have no originals, all we have is copies. And before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the... Oldest copies that we have dated to about a thousand, somewhere in that range. Several hundred years separated from Isaiah or Malachi or any of the Old Testament texts. And there's a difference between the New Testament as well, the the copies that we have, as opposed to the original writings. Uh, Let me conclude by regaining your confidence, and then we'll pick up there next week. Now, I mentioned that textual criticism is used by anyone that is interested in reconstructing any ancient texts. And what I've got in a chart here, I've got an abbreviation of a larger chart that has a lot more data. But just some examples of some writers that you've probably heard heard about. Herodotus, a historian, Plato, a philosopher, Aristotle, another philosopher. This is the material or this is the data that the textual critics from the the classics, those in the universities, this is what they have to work with to reconstruct the original Herodotus writings, or Plato or Aristotle. And I've got it in contrast of what we have in terms of the New Testament, so that we regain our confidence that what we have represents what Paul or Peter or Luke or James wrote. So just compare it, and I could give you uh, many others, but these you may have heard of. The dates of writing, we don't know for sure, but Herodotus wrote about 480 to about 406 B.C., Plato, 427 to 347, etc. Aristotle, I got the dates there. The earliest copies that we have of Herodotus. Notice the difference there. B.C. time frame, for 406. The earliest copy of Herodotus, about 900 A.D. Almost, what? 1,300 years, 1,400 years. Similar to Plato, a greater span with Aristotle. 1100 A.D., the earliest copies that we have. So the span there for Herodotus, 1300 years, Plato, 1200 years, Aristotle, 1400 years. From the writings of Aristotle to the earliest copy that we have of the writings of Aristotle. See the difference there? Notice also the number of copies that we have and some of them are older than that 900 AD, or, or younger, I guess you'd say, uh, closer to our time frame, than that 900 and that 1100. We only have eight copies of Herodotus. Now, I don't know if there are, more have been discovered since I got this data. Only seven for Plato, but even if one more, I mean, what are we talking about? One more, two more? Only seven for Plato, only five for Aristotle. Now notice the great contrast. The writings of the New Testament would have been between 44 to 95 AD. 44, we probably date James in that time frame, and Matthew, first books of the New Testament, and obviously the last book, Book of Revelation, 95 AD, so all of the books fit within that time frame. We have fragments, of just portions of the New Testament, dating to about 125 A.D. That's only a few decades away. Now, those are only fragments. So, we're just talking about a little bit of data there. We don't have the whole New Testament. We don't have a whole New Testament until about 400 plus A.D. But even that, a whole New Testament, 400 plus years, is... Lot closer to the New Testament time than Herodotus, Plato, or Aristotle, or any of the other ancient writers. And within decades to 300, 300 years, we have thousands of manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts. Thousands, not eight, seven, five, but thousands of them. And the more data that you have, just like in science, you have more data, the more refined, the more precise can you come to conclusions based on that data. So also the more data that you have in textual criticism, the more precise you can be and, and more certain that you have the reading that represents the apostle Paul. So in essence, what this is telling us that any critic that would say that the New Testament is full of errors and we, it's unreliable because all we have are copies is not taking in account the work of scholars in the area of textual criticism. And if they would criticize the New Testament, then they have no basis to have any confidence in any of the university classic departments. So you have to throw out almost all of the classic writings and the classic departments of the major universities if you're going to question the New Testament. Uh, Another little chart here. So in 44 to 45 AD, we have the autographs. In other words, the original writings. By 100 years later, we have many fragments, 200 to 500 years. We have many complete documents, In other words, a complete loop, complete mark, and even within that time frame, a complete New Testament. By 1000 AD, we have thousands of manuscripts. Today, we have over 5,000 manuscripts that have been discovered. So, we have an abundance of data to do textual criticism. Now, I'll tell you some more about it, but the bottom line... I'm going to skip over
0: to another slide here. We'll come back and talk about some of this next week. A.T. Robertson, a Greek scholar, says there are some
1: 8,000 manuscripts of the Latin Vulgate. Now, that's a translation. Textual critics can use a translation also. Now, that's not as important, obviously, as the Greek manuscripts. But you have 8,000 manuscripts of the Latin Vulgate and at least a 1,000 of the other early versions. In other other words, other translations add to that over 4,000. Now, when A.T. Robertson wrote, there were only 4,000. Now, there's about 6,000 Greek manuscript copies of portions of the New Testament. Besides all of this, much of the New Testament can be reproduced from the quotations of the early Christian writers. So what I'm saying is that the work of the textual critics, biblical textual critics, have given us a very, very high degree of confidence that what we have today represents the writings of Paul, James, Peter, Mark, whoever.
0: In fact, we have reading, we have more data such that we have
1: confidence that nothing has been lost. In other words, not a single word of the New Testament has been lost. The issue is whether this reading is more what Paul wrote than another reading. So we have additional readings as possibilities. So
0: that is nothing in compare, or the classics are in no way uh, comparable to what we have in the New Testament. So, uh,
1: we didn't quite complete the first principle, the linguistic principle, but we'll pick up there next week. Since our time has run out for today,
0: let's see. Who opened for us? Was that you? Did Mark or Eric? It
2: wasn't Mark. (laughs)
0: Can you close for us? Yeah, can you close
2: for us? Okay, sure. Can everyone hear me okay? Is that my mic's good? Yep. Yes. All right. Let's let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, the creator of the heavens and earth, the seas and all that are in them. We thank you and praise you for our gift of eternal life provided to us through the sacrifice of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross on our behalf, paying a penalty that we could never pay. So we thank you and praise you for that gift. Father, we thank you for your word, that you have preserved it as we've just learned Uh, through thousands of years, centuries, uh, we have your word intact that we can study today. And Father, we pray that you will bless our efforts and we pray, pray your uh, blessing upon men like Dr. Ray who are, is teaching us. We pray that we will benefit from this so that we can communicate your truth to a world that is desperately in need of a savior. So we ask these things in Jesus name. Amen.
0: Amen.
2: So we'll, we'll pick up where we left off.
0: Next week.